If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Welcome everyone. Thank you all so much for being here. It's so nice to see another full shop and a full shop for poetry and a full shop for Ian Patterson to talk about Shell Vestige Disputed, published by Broken Sleep. Um, Ian, thank you very much for being here. It's nice. Um, it's really nice. I can't wait to hear you to hear you read and talk about the collection. And it's nice to have Keston Sullivan here too, who's going to aid that conversation. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very happy and uh, not making a great job of this introduction, but you can probably tell I'm quite excited. Housekeeping as usual, you're very welcome to tweet and, and um, you know, tell the world how much you're enjoying the event while the event's on, but make sure your phones are silent if, if you are doing that. Thank you very much. And uh, that's it for me. And just one more request to welcome our guests. Thank you so much for being here. Cheers. <laughs> Uh, beware if you do tweet, however, that it's you know, liable to end up in an Ian Patson poem. There are a couple of um, quite scabrous juvenilian comments about Twitter and in this book I discovered whilst reading it in preparation for this event, happily. So um, anyhow, I'm going to say just a couple of words um, by way of introduction um, of Ian, and then Ian's going to read, and then um, we'll chat for a bit, and then Ian will read again, and then we'll chat a bit more, and then take whatever questions you might have for Ian. Um, so you, you all, of course, know that Ian's a, a poet and he's been writing poetry for a very long time. He said, um, just when we arrived here, 60 years, if you can believe that. Um, so there's a lot of it and um, there's a lot of it that's really, really good. And I urge you all, um, if you're not familiar with his work, to go and read as much of it as you can. There's um, a previous substantial collection was um, published called Time to Get Here. Um, we were chatting earlier about how many books with spines um, Ian has. That's one. Um, another is um, his book, Guernica, um, about aerial bombardment um, during the Spanish Civil War. Um, not poetry, that one, but a kind of historical uh, meditation and study. Um, this book, um, which Ian is launching tonight from Broken Sleep Books, is um, a, a collection of sequences uh, written over the past three or so years. Um, all of them, I think, wonderful in different ways. And we're going to hear, I think, a sample um, from perhaps more, more than one of them. Yeah. Think, is that right? Yeah. Um, tonight. So, um, yeah, if you have the the book or if you plan to get it, I don't know, maybe you can grab one and, and read along. But, um, anyhow, uh, yeah, Ian's a poet that I've admired greatly for a long time. It's a real pleasure to be um, here with him um, tonight. And um, I'll save my um, kind of enthusiastic descriptions of his work for the co conversation that we'll, that we'll have um, together. Um, but 
um, in case anybody doesn't know it, I would all urge you um, to look up um, one poem in particular um, that Ian wrote, which is not in this book, um, from a little earlier, um, The Plenty of Nothing. I don't know if people know this poem. Um, it incidentally um, won the Ford Prize for Best Poem, but I don't know how important that is to anyone here. Not so much to me, but what is important, I think, about that poem is that it is the most powerful and moving um, elegiacal poem that I know probably of the last at least 20 years, maybe 100. It's an extraordinary poem. Um, anyhow, um, let's just go on and um, if you could join me in welcoming Ian and he'll read some poems for us. Well, thank you, Keston. Um, I will. I'll read five or so, I think, from, from different bits of this book. Um, mainly, I think, so that you get a sense of what they sound like. Um, and also maybe get a sense of what they are. Uh, I'll begin with uh, the, the, the latest poem in this book, which is the one that introduces it which is called Orpheus Says, for obvious reasons, really. Kind rules as blind as words see far indeed, and state all traits agreed this form does not yet model change-blown want as leaves assigned delusion or some version of the real contracted to require marginal eyes, while secret arguments sustain a way to feel about invisible force, to pass for the sake of bay or nightshade, opening a breach in wonder, winding up to vanish or infuse a deadly Spanish war's image with news of homemade violent sequels shown on screens in minds each night, more largely bound to overlap, cooler turns subtracted by exchange of reverse tradition no less than a hybrid verse flower, more fully used there, as its tension, trusting, naked desire to read how margins hold the gate or wait as vestige of some older wrong, the title lost in weed and rust. A couple of poems from the sequence, a long sequence, Home James. This one is called Nearly Stopped. No scale in the eye of actual intent to get back a word about ghosts of commerce as secret bounty indebted to books had even a still winter law person to clear up. Less in view for so few night persons as not to have income, a fancy house, a street lamp into his dusky eyes for the depth he was to have to hide in his dream for an increase in time to settle given excess in hours or to regard it as language missing the day at once. Go so far so wet, be a time subject in renewal. In other words, be constituted by a sacrifice scale so new to reckon imaging of traceable connections, never let be at this last bargain in place, signs of length falling into a wish to better the inner voices, his vision of the rooms of his mind, organising to waste time with an idea of his own. 
The interest in his queer hand throbs in places dusty and incalculable, meant to settle his special gasp. A day glimpse waits behind the vast night, letters dropped into fire, a nearly blue sense of art mistake, memory of latent space by the door. Provoke better. Look sure for where he was and how it was in the eyes nature had liked better, even for the minute. The house might grow measured, a space apart against manner or form in a glance at a shock he minded, confused for the time as a wish to remember the matter of a laugh, wanting to crop any instant harder. Stupid speech interest went on, to take in events by impulse as much as what you call captive remark, in such things as eyes, matters he grasped away in order of writing. Come to the window and suppose a fresh mine of instant show to pocket the secret box, missing with a certain pinch. His need to doubt every quiet inspiration was now just passages with light on a slight letter protest with art-fashioned success moment, the taste for matter remembered in grace. The lapse admitted light renewals to the room. It was before the pages haunted over this fact, penned to the ear in right fusion from terms of further effect denied later desire. Know the window, as if in a play in your absence, always to lose heart whenever you look over the letter you lost and need, only an instant to ignore the taste of restless time, not to avoid the act of direct flight from art, wanting the troubled look as a sign to shut your eye. And a poem from a sequence called A Space Based on Hearsay. This is the first poem. It's called Air Flitter, which I think was air filter once. <laughs> Binding light over the brow, thrown from the air, soft matter incapable of rhetoric, assuming status attention. With so true an eye to extract value out of our reach, why mean to explain such posh, dismal magic as fictional wish? Fly over the wall, wearing a show made good in another language. Press a petal to rags to doubt about moving out of time as a scene offers to flutter the tongue and grove and flood the whole array with pastoral multiplex parody. Begin inset reason of shadow rakes to recognise the moulded conflict he or she brings by the yard to music. It is not necessary to explain four words as a form left behind in a seclusion that works with silence or an aeolian harp. Abiding in their backyard, <clears throat> containing the words called art of losing, it's still there in the sense of a glimmer impulse line cut back at the end, as burnt lists shake against the cold mind on implied stress, like a mouth blight, still without rhythm. Stuck material points well up and go back as what follows from an email dream, first without shouting so much in bed. Time on concrete, sift to brief air ruin. Notice a message as it stands for everyday models of relief in the mouth or body. Spice this object in abject damage, spaced to a yard of void sense, marked out in unhinged tenses, 
a way to consume that thought understood as a sight no longer missing an origin sensed about the wings of matter as they fade over and over into air flitter. I think that'll do to begin with, don't you? That, that will certainly do, yeah. Um, these are difficult poems, I think. I don't know what you all think. Um, I think they are in lots of different ways and richly rewarding to think about. Um, just uh, before we came here, Ian and I met in a cafe and got chatting about these poems and I learned something about them which um, completely transformed my already fragile understanding um, of these poems and made me start thinking about them again from scratch. And I asked Ian whether we might talk about this and he thought it probably was a good idea that people did know. So Ian has a particular um, method um, of writing, um, which is quite unusual, I think, in that um, it's not unusual for poets these days to um, include in their texts fragments of language culled from various places elsewhere and um, to fold into their writing quotations um, and to produce um, in various densities kinds of bricolage of other people's work. However, most of the poems um, in this book and all of the poems in the first sequence were written, well, maybe I should let you describe it, but by a kind of radical um, procedure of bricolage, which I don't really know how to describe it other than as um, is so much beyond anything like Eliot's impersonality that it's a kind of altruism. It's how would you describe it? Bonkers. Bonkers. Okay, that'll do. Um, what? Well, what I explained to Keston was that um, Home James, that first sequence of twenty-five poems, is written entirely in words taken from a late novel by Henry James, and. The procedure, really, is, there are no phrases taken from the novel, only one or at most two words together, mostly one single words, um, taken from most pages, and the sequence finished when I got to the end of the book. The, the impulse is there to write, and there's a sense of the swirling intellectual and emotional issues that the poem will consist of, but none of the words come directly out of the, the well of my own mind. Um, I want to escape, I can't escape from my own voice uh, and my own cadence, and I don't particularly want to escape from the latter, but I don't want to write the words that come unbidden to my brain and the procedure I've adopted in order to avoid that and or in order because it seems to work better for me is the one I've described that is the process of selection of the words is slightly opaque to me um, I will pick a word or a couple of words from here another one from there one from over there put them together, the ordinary creative censorship is at work to the extent that it will refuse some and choose others, um, rejig until what I have is what I want, but that it's none of the words in that sequence at any rate 
are words that have come from my own expression of my own desire or puzzlement or whatever else it may be. That is taboo and not allowed. That has to be escaped from. Mm. Which is an extraordinary and radical constraint to, to write under. Um, it seems has, natural to me in a way. But, right. uh, um, and to others would seem like yeah, um, wild bondage. Um, to, to restrict yourself entirely to a single novel um, by Henry James and to assemble all, your entire sequence of poems only from words pulled from that novel in the order in which they appear in it. Quite amazing. Um, you used the word censorship, and you said that this was an ordinary kind of censorship. Um, I think it's, if it's that, it's also an extraordinary kind of censorship. But that prompts me to wonder, um, since that word plainly has a kind of psycho psychoanalytic meaning, which I know you know, um, is this a particular kind of object relation that you are fashioning by selecting one novel, in this case, a novel, um, I think you may have chosen other types of texts besides novels for other projects, but in this case, a Henry James novel. And then with a kind of, well, I don't know whether I'd describe it as single-minded exactly, but a kind of fidelity to that one object, reading through it and crafting your own sequences of poems exclusively from the language that it gives to you. Is that a new kind of object relation, a literary object relation? I don't think so much of the novel itself as the the little bits of material that I take out of it as objects um, and that I do think of it as an object world that I am interjecting um, um, and to some extent projectively identifying with. Um, so yes, in that sense, there is a sort of object relations um, transference at work. Um, I also think of it as a kind of sculpture, um, a kind of, um, I mean, it, if you can imagine a page from Tom Phillips's Humument, um, that represents slightly the activity of my mind as it looks at the page. Uh, little, instead of blocking out things, little bits stand out because of their affective or intellectual or emotional resonance with the things that I'm trying to think about. Um, and so I take them and I, I add them, a bit like a caddisfly larva building its, its nest under the water, um, all sorts of oddities glued together. Uh, one thing that I had thought I'd talk about, and I guess I still could try to, um, before I learned from Ian that the poem was in this way, assembled entirely from materials found in Henry James, um, was about this kind of spaces of containment in it. Um, if you've taken a look at the book, then you'll know that many of the poems, most of the poems in the book, are written in um, regular stanzas, often in quatrains or in tercets. And particularly in the first sequence, I think the majority of these um, quatrains and tercets are, um, will end on a at the end of a sentence, so we'll end with a full stop. Not quite all of them, but, but many of them. So when I was reading this, I was thinking about the space that you create there by the regular patterned repetition of these kinds of containers for sentences and the sorts of conjunctions that are made possible by the spaces that you make. But now that I know that 
the conjunctions, as it were, conjoining other people's found language or one other person's found language. This changes again my sense of what the, the kind of grammar of this text is. I think it's a very fascinating grammar. I think you may have heard um, when Ian was reading it then um, that these sentences are very finely musical. Um, this was one of the strongest impressions um, that I had of the book when I first read it was that there are sentences here which at first sight um, might resemble um, a, a kind of prose um, which have the steadiness, the composure um, of um, prose, but which all of the time flicker in and out of recognisable um, metrical patterns, particularly, I think, in the first sequence, um, where there are some really sudden, beautiful eruptions of hexameters and heptameters. So now that I know that this is someone else's language that you've reassembled, um, I wonder about your musical sense when you were reading the James novel, about how it might be possible to retransmit this as not merely as poetry, but as metre, as a kind of poetical music, where you're assembling word by word, thinking all the time musically how this will sound finally, or, do, or were the, the metres that suddenly appeared, were they more kind of accidental or serendipitous than that? Well, I think they're probably a bit serendipitous, intuitive, I think, rather than accidental, um, certainly intended. Um, partly as a way of exerting control over what's going on, because you have to, I mean, censorship is, is not enough. You have to be shaping and making and uh, meet. Uh, there are three things, I think, that, that I use um, to some extent in the poems to do that. Uh, the... The metricality you describe is one of them. Um, a sort of rhyme, internal rhyme, is, an, is another. And the third is occasional um, distorted quotations. Yeah. Um, so there's a, I mean, to give an example, there's a poem somewhere, yes, uh, in the last sequence, um, which the first line is, another time abated, ages left for me. Um, and ages left for me is uh, is just rock of ages cleft for me, buggered about with. Mm. Um, so I do things like that as a way of both wanting a kind of raised eyebrow or raised smile from the reader, but also uh, because, well, partly because I can, but also because it, it it makes it it is a way of exerting control in the same way as metricality is, or in, yeah, I think it is the same sort of thing, really. Yeah, I mean, do say whenever you want to read some more, or I can keep asking more and more questions. But I'll what, ask another question. I'll okay. Go, yeah. And I'll read in a minute. Yeah. So I guess people with, have to yeah. get their stamina up for my readings. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I started by saying that they're difficult. I think, I don't know whether everyone would agree that that's true. They certainly, I mean, I find them difficult, but then I love difficult poetry, obviously. But um, one of the specific kinds of difficulty that I experience with them is um, the, what, what feels to me like the quality of thought in them, thinking, and this goes back, I guess, to this question again about the spaces that you've made in which thinking happens and the kind of grammar, the conjunctions and the ways that all the things are linked up. Um, in those spaces, and 
it's the difficulty of following along with the poems feels to me like partly um, an ex a strange, unsettling experience of a, of a kind of being slightly out of step or a disynchrony. The pace at which thought seems to be happening in these poems and the pace at which um, the poems themselves think through often quite sort of cognitively trying, difficult thoughts involving often um, quite complicated sort of articulations of abstractions can be very difficult to follow along with, not only, I think, in, a, you know, in an audience listening to the poem, but also when reading them, um, without feeling a sense that, um, it's, that the, the poem's pace is difficult to duplicate exactly or to match um, as a reader. But this doesn't feel, as that description might seem to imply, um, as though the poems are in any sense reclusive or are sort of you know, withholding something that they know that they don't want a reader to know. It doesn't feel like that at all to me. They feel inclusive, um, they feel welcoming and intimate even. But there's this strange space for thought in them. And I mean, I'm really not sure how to describe it, but the thought that happens feels like all of the time it's kind of, you know, kind of crackling with promise as it goes along with, um, and this is, this bears upon the length of the sentences of these poems too. Um, the sentences uh, are not often very long. I mean, by very long, I mean, they're not kind of Beckettian sort of infinitely extensible sentences, which would, you know, potentially go on forever. Um, they're sentences which might fill a tercet or a quatrain. But usually the sentences um, feel as though they're sort of beautifully balanced, um, they're poised. As I say, they might work in a kind of expository prose. Um, um, so they're not going to go on that long, but it feels as though a lot happens within the space of the sentence, that there are all these little triangulations of perspective as you go along, as you shift around, um, and a difficult thought often. And sometimes it's not immediately possible, I think, or easy anyhow, to make out what the thought is exactly. But there's this tension here between thought and thinking, the ways that the poems are thinking the thoughts that they think, um, which I find really intimate, but um, I don't yet know how exactly to describe it. But how do you think thoughts with someone else's language in spaces like those ones that you make, if that makes any sense as a question? It's a very abstract question, I know. Long ago, I was very taken, and I still am, by a phrase of um, Merleau-Ponty about the strange mode of existence enjoyed by the object behind our backs. Mm. Um, and that is partly the way I think. Mm. Um, I am interested in the shadows that thoughts cast and the way in which thoughts are very much composed of other thoughts um, the way in which contrarieties exist within uh, single subjects, with single utterances. Um, and I like to try to bring those out by, uh, by taking... When, when a sentence starts, it then it has a possibility of going in two ways, and I like it to do both, if I can. Um, I like to use ambiguities to to uncertainify what I'm saying, yeah. um, and so I I draw on what I know about how dreams work and how uh, how shadows work and how 
to some extent, how painting works mm. uh, to suggest these things. Um, and I like to write clearly discursive sentences that don't do what you expect them to do, yeah. um, uh, but, but make you uneasy or kind of give a sense of unheimlichkeit or, um, or otherwise just complicate things, really. Yeah. I, I, th I think the poems themselves quite simple are attempts to complicate um, the, the fairly simple business of thinking. But not, not to, not to offer the results of thinking. Um, I want them to be thinking, mm. not to have thought. Yeah. No, I think that's that's certainly true, and I'll, you know I'll, I'll stop so you can read some more. But I mean, I just just as a quick question, um, following directly on from that, so much poetry is content to have thoughts um, in a much more yeah. straightforward way, and to give them to someone that they would call a reader. I've always thought it was a rather condescending kind of relation to someone you don't know, to imagine that there they are and you're going to give them something like that in the form of a thought or a theme or whatever it might be, one of your memories or experiences, rather than, as you do, enlarging um, this space and creating potential new capacities for experiencing language and for experiencing thinking. Um, but is there... I mean, you've been writing like this for a long time, of course, and I, I don't imagine that you're any longer too much exercised by the other kinds of poetry being thrown around in the world that aren't like yours. But I just wonder what you think about, uh, is there in your poetry um, still a kind of polemical instinct against simplification and the kinds of mainstream poetry or the sorts of poetry which do go out of their way to make life easy for readers? Well, only insofar as... I don't particularly want to do that. Right. Um, I don't think I have the polemical uh, force which I did have uh, earlier stages in my life. Um, but I hope that um, because I'm just less interested, as you say, in mm. in what other people are doing. Um, it's a, <laughs> yeah. dis a disreputable thing to say, really. Yeah. Um, but it is a, a, a consequence of getting older. Um, and, um, yeah, I suppose, it used to be called wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't. Um, I'm going to read, I'm going to read uh, some of the, the last sequence in the book, which is called Imaginary Sky. The title comes from... Uh, uh, a not particularly exciting 18th century poem by a not particularly exciting 18th century poet called Richard Lee, um, <clears throat> which says, The woods where beasts or herded men abide, as thick are planted there, and near their side fantastic people too in false fields move, and fowl in larger fields of air above, swift as the winged thought that feigns their flight, yet never soaring out of inward sight, Though with their fancied wings they higher fly and traverse all the imaginary sky. Which I thought, in a way, was a simplified version of what I was trying to get at. It begins with a hasty dip. These poems don't come from Henry James. I don't know where they do come from. 
half belonging to this regard, a hasty dip, maybe in its final nicest question to do out the way like a room for the walls at midsummer, from the first comfort kept to lose, and then you have even this dry view with the lapse of years. Darker shades of some head invited for colour, a fresh alarm pitch for an elastic interval message, a warning emphasis right through the first hour of omission. Turning in a moment in his private circle, asked to mark it, as apt and weak like an old story made violently new, all done up to remain a subject loosely doubtless in measure. In a fine fact of exposure motive haste, he struck her as sign, as degree, call it nothing uttered, not even a word subject. We've just managed to say nothing of the short wave tension, rather lighted up from China and wired to the line. No lines conscious of poor scribble for a man she held exposed to allusion, but nothing was as it was once begun, my finger on the bounds. So of dreams, when traces stab at a figure, I sing. I begin from behind my head, with a blot to trample as my head feeds me, and climbs my stick collage with all the art in the world exercising obstacles as a child would have been its customer or eaten it all up. Whatever next. It was about context responsibility first, written in the difficult motif of a class and signalling at the outset none of its value had to be axed to document the virus pole. What were these birds? Lost from vineyards, lost from spindle, lost from the map of music. Day to day, to prompt us depleted, to eat what we hear as silence, pleated in the ear. And create islands of smirched glass etching them instead. Scorched years of blasting to fetch in the last remnants ever told, or drilled to buggery short term and strictly off the books. Welcome Galanthus glimpses, lightened to redeem what nothing else for it, lost to dark or troubled hand, to collar drove wrongs, collected red bar to press or unexpected proposals pushing up through. Snow drops from the cloud formula, unfurl in masks as streetwise shingle, hives a loud melancholy raw air, played thin on distant wires, single sweet noises, dire warnings to range away in order to continue the soundings beyond mountains. The detained miles loosened merge in memory from moth clutter to spam fritter, grim pastures and impostures all lost as remnants of old music are. Stitch to hamper a blue button, expect to use its register in wild drugget underfoot meshwork, if only once or twice, with eyes fresh and open wide, ladder back balanced by twigs, as if to say, most words deliquesce here in the wood's raw gains. Barge telepathy less strongly flows to plug the gap variant trend in material impact per capita, notably in income, now wide garble. Where the ever more sublime fumarole gasps interrupt word thought expressed as Pierrot sigh, what remains of all the salient world so girt with wrong brash twirling tweets against us? Look now, a green fireplace addressed as change, trading notes in pleasant components, scratched a kind of theatre of chance in work known to make chores for thumb or teeth in a lost projected refuge. In the mid-smile, 
switch off a magnetic vocal fox in casual decades of woodland out of choice used precarious cheap song panic some club in a blind rule category noting all right to darkness people call it a wren habit spelling foredoomed and bent on obsolete classic survival power far down by yon bewilderment aback if you peer more dimly towards the old place of a morning but what other follow think what other thing follows next was written only for several days stirred up the wretched past of no importance to meet illusion did one good and paid no attention to whatever it might have been radish nostalgia or banish unofficial rose disguise that blows up time immemorial a gorge to hanker after this afternoon my prism for cloudy climbs my cover story now basically rounded with superimposed marginal teeth in self-defense <clears throat> half eaten i dream red posters up at corners i began reading again between a line not crossed an eye not doubted as stone crop and hawk bit crop and bite and grow jackdaws all day here let them come they will profusion atone and bless each reticule kitchen tender refusal fine birth for supper glimpses ever uh, ever open utter blending hero reduction might also drips as night devours the car whose lips are right or often say they are that'll do it's enough okay <clears throat> the longest of these was um the, i think it was the, the second that ian read there whatever next and that's three words in the title whatever next rather than whatever next and Something I was looking out for as I was reading the earlier poems and thought, um, interestingly, I hadn't found um, in the poems until this point, when suddenly there it is, is these clusters of alliteration which suddenly are there in this poem. And before, um, when I was asking whether there might be any kind of polemical spirit um, in your poem in relation to the kind of scene or world that it occupies, um, it felt to me like the moments where your poetry became, in an unstable way, flickeringly, never in a kind of resolute and obvious way, a bit satirical maybe, or started to sort of jab and point at the world a bit. Um, it also tended to become um, more alliterative. I don't know whether that's true or not, I mean, whether you think so. I don't know if it's poem. true or not either, that's interesting, yeah. yes. But, but here it really clearly is, from moth clutter to spam fritter, grim pastures and impostures all lost as remnants of old music are. Um, that is, was to my ear, anyhow, really uncharacteristic of the earlier poems. And here you have a kind of real kind of sonic coagulation. Mm. What, was that conscious, these moments where it all gets knotted up like that? Or? I think it probably was intentional, if not yeah. conscious. Okay. Um, because <laughs> it's quite fun you know yeah. when you can do it um, when the words are right um, it's you know 
a lot of it is play. Mm. Um, and it's nice to play. Um, and <laughs> don't laugh. It is. Um, and, you know, when you've got pastures and imposture, of course, you know, you're getting, you're pointing your finger at things a bit. Yeah. Um, people who graze. Sort of thing, yeah. <laughs> I point no fingers. Yeah. Um, could you maybe say a bit about the sequence? What sequences are for you? Because all the poems in this book I th are in sequences. Yeah, I know. I, I wonder about that. Um, I mean, it's easy with the Henry James sequence because that went on as long as the book did. And when I ran out of book, it stopped. Um, and I didn't feel like, you know, extending the sequence to the works of Henry James. Um, the sequence is a is to do with something I can't quite get at except through the sequence. Uh, it's uh, a sort of underground reservoir in me that needs to be written and after a certain point it runs out. I've done it. Um, so I think, uh, I mean, the more interesting question is why it's not just one thing, really. Mm. Um, and I think that's because I don't have a very good long-term attention span. Uh, <laughs> uh, I break off and I've... I think other things, I get distracted. Um, and also the impulse needs to be renewed. But as long as it can be renewed, it's still an impulse to, to keep on getting at the same sort of thing. So I would, I, I, I think it's true to say that the that a sequence is has a thematic or subject, I mean, it, it's to do with certain things which I'm getting at, and when I think I've done enough getting at them, I stop, and then I get on to something else when something else arises mm. and needs to be treated. I'm not very good at doing things in single poems. They never seem to be enough. And I'm not very good at doing very long poems. Mm. I quite like long lines, but I don't like long poems. Mm. I get bored. Yeah, how, when you know that it's enough is a really interesting question. Yeah, um, it is. It it's yeah. a physical feeling as much as anything else. Yeah, and um, inevitably that kind of pressurises the whole question during the work of writing about how are you going to end the poem, of course. Yeah. Here's the moment where, since it has stopped, presumably that was enough. Um, but, I mean, the endings of your poems are, I think, very distinctive in all sorts of ways. Um, they don't typically tend to end... Um, with anything that's a recognisable kind of finale or the Big Bang, or um, they don't end in any way that's where it's they don't make it formally obvious that they've kind of arrived at a moment which is a conclusion. So they're not poems which um, have a kind of psychic economy or propose or project a psychic economy with the reader where there's going to be a payoff or a moment of recognition at the end or a flash of clarity or anything like that. They do occasionally toy with that a little bit, particularly, I think, in the ones that look a bit more, um, rather than the stanzaic ones, the ones that look a bit more like sonnets. They're not all, in fact, sonnets, but they look a bit like them. And so one of these sequences looks like a sonnet sequence. And some of those endings um, 
and I think you can, if I were to kind of typologize your endings, then the ones that sound more like they're at least teasing a reader with the possibility of hearing a conventional lyrical ending are the ones with short sentences at the end, like do what you can. Yeah. So that's the end of a poem. Well, now inhale all the fragments. Yeah. That's another ending of one of these poems. But many of the poems, as you say, they, it's not really clear that they've reached a point where enough has been said or enough has been thought. And I really like that. And not necessarily because you know, it's you know, a rejection of closure or you know, we, we, I think we're, many people in the room will be familiar with kind of theoretical accounts of why a poem might be more interesting for avoiding um, closing itself off. Um, but I like just the sense that um, a kind of meditation has gone its course um, in the poems that thinking has got to where it has got to, not necessarily to an impasse. It doesn't feel that the end is in that sense, especially pressurized, like banging into a brick wall, but they end where they end. And as you say, then they pick up again. And I, I quite like that, the way that they, they do that. How do you know when you've finished the sequence, apart from in the one where you got to the end of the Henry James novel? I think I feel a sort of sense of liberation. Liberation. Or the kind of slight pressure round about here stops mm. coming. Mm. And um, I think, oh, that's good. That's done. Uh, don't have to do anything more now. Go and make some more bread. Um. <laughs> Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Is that, do you think it's time for the embarrassing questions? Yeah. You may have said, and I might have forgotten or didn't hear, were the titles in the Home James sequence taken? They were, yes. Um, and um, slightly surprisingly, actually, when I was looking at them. But yes, they, they, I think all the titles in the, in the Home James sequence come from whatever book it was. I think it was The Sacred Fount, but I'm not totally sure. I, I'm glad you cleared that up because I was heading off to the summer of 69 and thunderclap Newman from the, from the first <laughs> poem. <laughs> and, no. <laughs> and the, the other quick question was, you mentioned the sequences, and so I was reading through, I suddenly realised that they were sequences, but they weren't indicated on the contents page. Was that an editorial or an authorial decision? That was a publisher's decision. They were, in, they were indicated on the contents page when I wrote the contents page. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
I'm not the greatest reader of poetry, but it seems to me like they often bristle with feeling, but also that they bristle specifically with a kind of political feeling to do with rage at chaos, rage at ineptitude. Is that, am I reading that right? Am I reading that wrong? You can read it how you like. Yes, I mean, I, I, hope, I hope they do bristle with um, a great deal of uh, anger at everything, really, um, but not too, um, not too obviously. So um, I think it, it's probably clear to good readers of poetry. Um, <laughs> flatter, flatter. Um, but, I mean, the, the poems try not to be too overtly polemical, except that they include overt polemic. Um, and they're designed to make people agree to be unhappy with the state of affairs, if they're not already. Like with the with the Henry James or like another text you're taking it from, do you ever find that the substance of the text you're taking it from seeps into the poems in some way or in some kind of spontaneous or unplanned way? Interesting thought. Yes, I think probably it's hard to avoid it, although sometimes the kind of reading I'm doing of the text is very much just picking out words. But, um, I mean... It, in some poems I've been writing recently, um, I've been using some books by Raymond Goyce that I've been reading, and uh, partly they seep into what I wanted to think about, um, and partly um, I needed to resist a lot of the words in them. So that the combination of those two probably means that they're more Goycean than, than the... Home James is Jamesian. It, I think it probably depends a bit on how easy it is to extract words from the page and how big the vocabulary of the writer is. I wanted to just say, say two things. One was I really love the cover of the book. It's <laughs> fabulous. But also, um, it was, it's really good to hear you talking to Keston. I feel really relieved, Keston, that a professor of poetry such as yourself finds Ian difficult because I really love Ian's poetry, mm. but I haven't got a clue why. Mm. I just love it. Mm. And I, in fact, I haven't seen Ian since before lockdown, but during lockdown, I went back and read lots of your poems because I felt like they, for me, they have a kind of, it's like listening to, I don't know, Thelonious Monk or something. Yeah. They, they just disrupt where I am. And I've, I've I find your work just so kind of key to helping me write because you just sort of, you just disrupt. You don't, you, nothing is ever what you expect. And I just love it. And it, I really appreciated the conversation you've had tonight. Thank you very much. Gosh, good. <laughs> that's, that's really nice to hear. That's just what I want. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I'd like to get back to the Henry James yeah. and numbers of questions. Were you a character in search of an author or were you reading Henry James when you decided this was the way you were going to write poems? 
And the other thing I wonder about is knowing it now, when I go home and read the poems, will I know? Would I otherwise have known? I'm not sure you did. I didn't, no. And what difference do you think that ought to make? Thanks. If I start from the end, I don't think it ought to make a difference at all, um, though I can see that it might. Uh, no, I didn't set out to, to write out of that particular book or that particular author. It just happened to be that I had I bought that particular copy of that book on David's bookstall in 1968 or 9 and had been meaning to read it for some time. As <laughs> <laughs> one, one does. And I and I happened to I happened to be reading it and thinking, oh, it's quite heavy going, um, quite like to skip. I think it's a sacred fount, but I can't quite remember. It's one of those two dark blue late novels. Um, and at the same time, I was, I'd, I'd been not writing for a while and it was lockdown and suddenly there were all these things that were churning around inside me. Um, and the two just got muddled up, really. Um, and I thought, yeah, okay. It's a. I mean, I had done it in the same way once twenty years earlier with the collected poems of Thomas Hardy, um, where I'd written a sequence called Hardyhood. But there, I'd stopped at round about page one hundred and twenty because I'd had enough of it. Um, mm. So I, I think that the the level of contingency in the source text is too high for it to create much interference, really. hope so, because um, otherwise I would have chosen something mm. more, more interesting. Roald Dahl, Karl Marx. <laughs> well, yes, certainly, probably not Roald Dahl. Yes, Karl Marx or Dr Seuss. <laughs> so so um, I'm sat here, um, Ian, I'm over here. Where are you? This way. Oh, you're there. Oh, Hello. Hi. So I'm, I'm sat here under P, so I'm sat here under Proust, and so it then makes me think of your work in translation, which is about inviting inclusivity and, and allowing people to, to understand. Mm. And I wondered where that then fitted in your kind of work with words. I think, well, two things really there. Um, one is to do with translation and the other is to do with inclusivity. Um, I think my poems... I try to make my poems available to anybody. They may be um, difficult because they run counter to expectation, um, but that expectation is a social construct and an educational construct which I want to see go, really, uh, and the poems are an attempt... Uh, in a small way, to undermine the the, the normative and um, hegemonic kind of poetry. Um, and I think translation uh, is not... I mean, in a way, my poems are translations anyway. Mm. They're translations of material into new materials. Mm. Um, and, you know, Proust says that all 
writing is a process of translation of what's mm. inside you into what goes on on the page. Um, so I, I would see it all of a piece, really. Mm. Um, and to the extent that people find my poetry off-putting because that it doesn't conform to expectation, I'm sorry, but there's nothing much I can do about that. I just, yeah, I just find what you said about material um, really interesting. It just reminded me of something that I was going to say but didn't. Um, was, there's a kind of private materialism in these poems, if that's not too paradoxical or meaningless idea of a private materialism. But the first poems in particular, continually circling back to the word matter and thinking about what matter might be, what matters and how things are made to matter. And, um, and coming up with all sorts of surprising um, like descriptions and conceptualizations of matter. And it just struck me for the first time that it might be possible um, to have such a thing as a private materialism, whatever that might be. I don't know yet, but it's a phrase that's stuck in my head after reading these poems. But one of those things might be, I suppose, treating the object as you've described, just, um, really thoroughly exploiting all of its contingencies, finding out what it's meant for you after all these years. But yeah, anyway, private materialism. There they are. Thanks, Ian and Kirsten. Um, Ian, this is a slightly facetious question, but I hope it's... Uh... Anyway, um, was there something in particular that put you off your own unbidden words? Um, or, or was it uh, uh, more to do with what you just explained about the, um, the sense of uh, uh, normative transmission of uh, interiority to uh, a reader's mind or something like that? I didn't quite catch the beginning of that, I'm afraid. Was there something in particular that put you off your own unbidden words, as you described it at the start? I don't know quite how to answer that. Um, I think the answer is no, because I, I, was, I think I always try not to question anything um, and let things... I, I, I try to open myself to all the um, stuff that's burbling around really um which the, i mean which is why i mean for example it's why the word matter comes back in different ways and in the same way quite a lot in these poems is because it's something that i kept on thinking about um and it i didn't want to keep it out but i I'm, i was much more interested in letting things in than in asking what they were um, it's, it's, it's the process of writing that is an attempt to find out what they are, I think. It would be very hard to memorise poems like this, no? Can you, me can you know a poem by heart? No. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I've never tried, but I suspect it would, uh, I, I would keep on getting them wrong um, because they are bizarrely hard to memorise. Right, right, mnemonic devices. Yes, there are not the mnemonic devices are too caught up within the poem to to help to help memorise them. No, I and anyway, my memory is not what it was. <laughs> um, thank you all for your questions and contributions. Uh, do stick around. We'll get some wine. Ian will sign. Thank you, Ian Patterson. Thank you. Thank you, Kirsten. Thank you very much, Justin. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk 
forward slash events.